0: You are listening to the audio from Tuesday night class at CA Church, located in Coquitlam, British Columbia. We hope this teaching helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Okay, well, welcome to week two of First and Second Kings. Um, I hope you've done all your reading as we dive into our our section today. Let me begin with prayer, and uh, then we'll just get going. Let's pray. God of all grace, we thank you that you alone are Lord, you alone are God, and we live in a world with a lot of competing gods, a lot of competing attention, and so we do pray that we would live our lives in such a way that when people see us, they would know that the Lord our God is the Lord in our life. And so this is our desire. We lay this before you. We thank you for your word, that you're not a God who plays hide and seek, but you're a revealing God. And we pray that you would speak to us through your word tonight. We ask this not in our own strength, but we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay. So, tonight we're going to be carrying on in our journey through First and 2 Kings. But as we're starting, I just wanted to kind of situate our our conversation uh, tonight by telling you about this article that I read. (laughs) Michelle, did you read this one, this one? I posted it the the other day. It's a really interesting uh, article, and the article is called, Why the Past Ten Years of American Life Have Been Uniquely Stupid. (laughs) It is a brilliant article. It's very good, and I can send it to you if you're interested in it. Um, it's by a guy named Jonathan Haidt, and um, I think it could certainly apply to Canada, not just to uh, to America. And but his, his big idea is this. is, and He says, what has changed in this past 10 years that has caused so many problems in Western culture? And he talks about the advent of social media. He says, it's not like social media in and of itself is a problem. He says, when social media, when some of these... Uh, platforms came out, you know, originally it was like called MySpace, does anybody remember MySpace? And then it became Facebook and, and, and different things. It was actually a, a decent, fun way to reconnect with old friends. It actually was. But something's changed, especially in the, in the past 10 years. And what has happened is, and, and there's a number of, of factors that go into this but there's an increasing complexity to these social media platforms and what they've caused is a deepening division within culture incredible division and um, and this has caused a lot of problems in Western culture and so what has happened, we're now at a place where everyone has an opinion on everything and, but here's, the, here's, here's one of the factors: is that every or many people are afraid of putting their ideas out there for fear of what the other side will say about it. And so, right away, you have a lot of conversation. No, no, not a lot of conversation. You have a lot of monologues, but not a lot of conversation. And so, what you do is you say, "This is my opinion." And I look for people who will agree with me and we have our echo chamber and we're just talking among ourselves. And you have another side and they're talking among themselves. And if you're just kind of standing in the middle, it's like, I think both sides, are, you're going to get shot from both sides, right? Because there is no neutral ground. And so you have this deepening divide and almost like this bifurcation that's taking place in Western culture where you have two sides that cannot talk to each other out of fear of being shut down, or cancelled, or whatever. But the problem is, if you don't talk to one another, you actually can't grow. Because when you, have, when you talk to people who disagree with you, that's how you grow. But the very nature of the forums for dialogue are such that you cannot have conversation with each other anymore. And so, all we have is increasing two echo chambers. you got the right and you got the left and as a result our world has gotten increasingly divided and with that is anger and suspicion towards anyone we disagree with so whatever political leader we happen to disagree with we're just increasing anger and suspicion towards it and one of the interesting uh, points that the uh, the author made the, the the yeah the author of the articles made is that um that the trust level in Western democracies towards their government is at an all-time low. Nobody, nobody trusts their government. Statistically, there's a much, much higher trust level towards the government in countries like Russia and China, in dictatorships. Isn't that weird? Like you would think, you would have you know in a democracy you would have a greater trust level but you have a much higher trust level towards the government in dictatorships than you do in democracies and so his argument is saying there's something about the ways you know social media is working today that is undermining conversation it's undermining trust in institutions and is also undermining he says every, every, every healthy culture has to have some kind of common story that they can reach to. You know, hey, we're in this together, we believe in democracy, whatever the common story happens to be. But in the west because of these factors, everything is so fragmented, there's no common story and so there's no there's no trust, there's no conversation. And so well he didn't really get to that point in his his point is that both sides are vying for for power and and both sides will try to shut down the other side but here's a problem how do you lead if you're a leader if you're a political how do you lead in this how do you lead in a world where nothing is certain How do you how do you lead in a world where there's no consensus on anything? How do you lead in a strange world and and part of the problem in our culture? This is related to Solomon in case you're wondering Uh, Part of the problem in in the world is that nuance has disappeared because if somebody says I think this But you know, it's actually more complex. No, which side are you on you on this side or this side? And so you get recent, you know, developments like in Toronto, where you get Ryerson University. One of my, a lot of my friends went to Ryerson. Um, it wasn't a university back then in Toronto. Ryerson being renamed. I don't know if you've heard about this last week. Yeah, it got renamed um, <laughs> to this really creative, inspiring name: Toronto Metropolitan University. I mean, which artistic genius came up with that name? Um, <laughs> What an insipid name! But Ryerson, because of you know some nebulous, it's not even that clear in terms of his position with with regards to you know you know First Nations uh, issue. But he was actually one of the key figures in Canadian history to argue for universal education. Like he's a very interesting and quite in Canadian history quite, quite a good man, quite a good leader. But this thing is, the moment you try to introduce nuance, you're shut down. Because there is no nuance. As one person once put it, tyranny is the absence of nuance. And so what we have happening, and I love in this article, because he describes you know, these two sides. And He says, what's being left out? And I love this term. What's being left out is the exhausted majority. <laughs> and that's like, man, why can't we just, no, no, no. We are exhausted, but we have no voice, right? And so that's how a lot of people are feeling these days. I don't know about you, but they're exhausted at all the shaming, all the yelling, and all the division. And what's missing is a reality that life is a lot more nuanced and a lot more complex than people realize. Now, I say this because the complexity and nuance are characteristics that run actually through the Bible, I believe. Sometimes people say, ah, oh, the Bible's just cookie cutter, black and white, and it's, it's actually if you read the Bible carefully, there's a lot of nuance, there's a lot of complexity, and especially in the book of Kings. And the Bible is not simplistic. I think the Bible is actually filled with, with a lot of wisdom and very complex figures. And one of the things why I think Christianity is true, or Christian faith is true, is that it, it, it does fit reality in the sense that reality is a lot more comp- complicated and complex than we, than we realize. And so I, I say this just as an introduction to again to our friend Solomon because Solomon is a lot more complex and nuanced than we realize. And we're going to see this played out in chapters three through five. Um, Yeah, so the, Lori, that's a good point. Lori uh, makes the point that one of the, you know, the, the medium is the message. One of the issues with social media is that there's a certain anonymity. So you can say a lot of mean things because you're hiding behind your profile picture or whatever or, or whatever it happens to be. It's kind of like what it's like when you're driving. People are a lot meaner when they drive <laughs> than they are if they're walking. Um, yeah, okay. So let's let's dive in tonight. Tonight, what are we going to do? We're going still a little bit slowly, and then we're accelerating next week. So get ready to do a lot of reading this week. Um, we're just going to look at a couple chapters, three chapters, First uh, Kings three to five. And just as a recap, I just want to lay out some of the key themes that we've encountered in First and Second Kings so far. Uh, these are some of the key themes that are going to run through the books. One of the key themes that comes up over and over again is the theme of God versus the other gods. This is what I was preaching out on, on the weekend uh, in, in, the, in the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. And so the underlying truth in First and 2 Kings is this, that there is no God but the Lord. There is no God but the Lord. But the story of Kings, is the slow and then rapid descent into idolatry from israel's leaders and it begins this this descent begins with solomon and and here's the reality that we need to realize when we're reading kings because sometimes when we read the Bible, we think that you know, there's long stretches of time where Israel's just walking with the Lord and everything's good, and then they kind of wander away. The default in the Old Testament is the people of God, the people of Israel, having many, many gods before them. They worship maybe Yahweh, but they worship with a lot of the other gods. And they are all kind of lumped together. And so when you're reading Kings... You don't think of, it's Yahweh versus Baal, Baal. Or it's Yahweh versus Asherah. No, no, no. It's God versus God and a lot of other gods. That's the issue. It's the exclusivity of Yahweh, God alone. That is the issue in First and 2 Kings. And it is the issue that appears with the golden calf in the book of Exodus, and it runs through the entire Old Testament. And here's a shocker, it runs through our lives even to today. I think the issue, I'll speak for myself, the issue for me is not that I don't believe in God, or it's not that I believe in this God instead of Yahweh. The issue for me is, sure I believe in God, But I also believe in a lot of these other things and and give a lot of allegiance to these other things like hockey, like, you know, (laughs) scrolling, like, you know, whatever it happens to be, like all sorts of things in addition to God. The second theme that will show up is this idea of central worship versus the high places. I'm going to come back to that because I'm going to explain. You're going to come across when you read First and Second King these high places. What are these high places, right? Thirdly, is a question that's a debate between covenant loyalty versus spiritual rebellion. And again, uh, the question is, will the people of God be, stay in covenant commitment to God? And there's going to be people coming along reminding Israel... That you need to get, stay in covenant commitment with God, and so even though First and Second Kings is called First and Second Kings, it could just as easily be called Elijah and Elisha, because the prophets figure largely in the story of Kings, and the prophets calling Israel back into loyalty um, shows up again and again. The other theme is true prophecy versus lying spirits. You're going to find a lot of prophets saying, thus says the Lord, this is what God says. But you're also going to find people say, hey, I'm a prophet, and this is what God is saying. And it turns out that's not what God is saying. And so you have to discern, hey, you're both prophets. One is telling the truth, one's not. How can I tell the difference? Which, let me just throw this out there to you. Um, one of the questions I want to ask you is this. Do you know how to discern the voice of the spirit from the voice of, a, of the liar? Because yeah, I have a white God will
1: give me infinite someday.
0: Yeah, someday. And yet, and, yet, and yet we have wisdom and we have discernment and we have the gift of the Holy Spirit that can help us along the way. And there are some telltale signs between the two. But it's something as as followers of Jesus, we need to ask ourselves, because many times I'll have people come up to me and say, oh, well, it's just very clear that God is telling me that. I'm like, is it clear? Is that really God? And how do you know? Tell me your process. Well, I just really feel that. Oh, okay. Anything else? No, that's about it. Okay, so yeah so i mean th- this discernment is really important the other theme is god's covenant with david versus complete disintegration this is going to be a theme that we're going to come across because one of the questions is spoiler alert israel gets cut into two pieces the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom that's what happens and uh, we'll get there next week but then the question is you get some really rotten kings in the south how come they kind of get free passes and people in the north they're rotten kings and they get incredible judgment. Doesn't seem fair, well, it's connected to this promise that God made to David and to the Davidic covenant, which we'll talk about. And finally, God's sovereignty versus human pride. And that's a running theme, not just through kings, but throughout history. So let's get back to the story of kings. Last week, we uh, witnessed a very complex transfer of power we saw how Solomon used his wisdom, and it was wisdom, but of a mafia type, uh, (laughs) a different kind of wisdom, to tie up some loose ends from David's kingdom and secure and solidify power. Practically speaking, it involved the execution of three rivals to power. Okay? By the time we get to chapter three, the theme of wisdom has been firmly established. It has taken center stage And we arrive at 1 Kings chapter 3. So if you have a Bible, turn to 1 Kings chapter 3. We're not going to read the whole thing, but we'll read some of it. It would be very sad to go through 1 Kings without actually reading it at any point. So, but hey, we can do that. Um, Here we go. 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 1. Oh, we'll do the last verse um, in chapter... uh, 2 so the kingdom was established in the hand of solomon that's how things end the kingdom has been established the reign has been passed on from david to solomon chapter 3 solomon solomon made a marriage alliance with pharaoh king of egypt he took pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of david until he had finished building his own house and the house of the lord and the wall around jerusalem The people were sacrificing at the high places, however, because no house had yet been built for the name of the Lord. Now Solomon loved the Lord. Walking in the statutes of David, his father, only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was a great high place. Solomon used, um, used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night. And God said, ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said, oh, you have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness and righteousness and in uprightness of heart toward you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Lord, my God, you have made your servant king in place of David, my father. Although I am but a little child, I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, this your great people? Now, please the Lord that Solomon had asked this, and God said to him, because you have asked this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you wise and discerning mind, so that none like you has been before and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. And if you walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. And Solomon awoke, and behold, it was a dream. Then he came before Jerusalem and stood before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and offered up burnt offerings and peace offerings and made a feast for all of his servants. Okay. So, as we talked about last week, often when people talk about the life of Solomon, they begin in chapter three. And the story goes something like this, Solomon prays for wisdom, God grants him wisdom, and he is quite wise, he makes a lot of really good decisions, it's awesome, and then later on he kind of falls away and he doesn't end well. And so the story of Solomon is usually good Solomon, bad Solomon. Solomon starts well, but doesn't finish very well. And last week, we suggested, yes, that, that seems a little too tidy. Maybe even a little oversimplistic. In fact, in chapter 1 and chapter 2, we, we, we looked last week and said, you know what, I'm not sure if Solomon started off that well. We get to chapter 3, and Solomon there is a change, but we come across uh, chapter three and the very first verse we read, well, we read that Solomon's kingdom was established, and, and then we read in chapter three, um, right at the beginning, what, what stands out to you? He made a political alliance. With Egypt, it's a very powerful nation. Yeah. Okay. What else? Yeah, he married. He married uh, Pharaoh's daughter, right? Okay. Was he already married? We don't know. We don't know. We know he's married quite a few times or later is on. It that God overlooked three murders before and he's, he's good with the first and second chapter, and he's in God's favor. Well, that's a good question. And, 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 yeah, I mean, that's a larger question because that question can also be uh, applied to the life of David, right? Yeah. Um, so he's looking at Solomon's heart, looking at Solomon's future, maybe. But if the heart of the Covenant in Jerusalem, why is <laughs> it going to be See, those are great questions you're reading the text well so why is he going to gibeon if the ark of the covenants in, in jerusalem see this is we have to read there's a narrator there's a narrator telling the story and the narrator is not just saying and this happened this happened the narrator's got something he wants to say and so you have to pay attention to this so right at the very beginning you know the kingdom established well done let's look forward to this great and a lot of people say oh look at solomon he prays and he prays for wisdom which he does which is good but just at the beginning, the narrator says, oh, by the way, Solomon, he, he makes a political alliance. Uh, he makes his political alliance with, uh, with Egypt. With Egypt. Now, okay, put your mind into Israel's history. He Makes an alliance with Egypt. The pharaoh is his daddy-in-law. The pharaoh is his father-in-law. The pharaoh, the sun god. This may be problematic. This may be problematic. And if you lay out, if you, if you read this against the background... Of the law of Moses, even written back in chapter two, you can see this this is a little bit of a problem. Because Egypt is a name that throughout the Old Testament has negative connotations. Egypt is the oppressor. Egypt is the old arch enemy, the source of problems. It's like you know, entering into alliance between the Toronto Maple East and the Montreal Canadians. Like it just wouldn't happen. And and you would be really worried if it did, yes? See <laughs> so now Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy teaches us in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 16, it warns Israel against a return to Egypt. Be careful, because in Egypt you were slaves. And it also forbids intermarriage with foreigners. Not because of racial issues, but because of religious issues, right? And here we find Solomon becoming the son-in-law of his leader. And so right from the beginning of chapter 3, things are complicated, okay? And I think, and I agree with uh, Ian Proven on this, that that this cannot be read as anything but a veiled criticism of Solomon, right from the beginning. And this is going to come up again and again, because if you read 1 Kings carefully, there are 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7... Eight times in Solomon's life that the narrator makes this point. Yeah, remember how God rescued Israel out of Egypt? Eight times it's mentioned in Saul Sol- And th- see, those are just fun little geeky clues because, like, okay, he, he's saying something here. So right from the beginning, the author of Kings is laying out the root of Solomon's later, I think, apostasy and it's connected to Solomon's loves in some ways. Okay, so he marries Pharaoh's daughter. We'll, we'll we'll turn a blind eye to that, okay? Well that maybe it was just political. Then what does it say? He took Pharaoh's daughter brought her to the city of David. Then what does it say? until he finished building yeah so what are the three things His, yeah his house the temple and the wall which probably is like other building projects right now is that just descriptive telling us just things that Solomon you know some of the building plans that he had I mean on one hand the text is saying something about Solomon that Solomon was a builder good and so what does he build first yeah he builds his house then what does he build then the temple and then a city wall Yeah, he could do it, he right? Was going to fall short. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we do. the uh, story of Samson. My Oh, Solomon, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, and that's, the, and that's the point that we were making last week, is that there's only one hero in the Bible, and it's not people, right? So what we have here... Um, We have way back in 1 Samuel chapter 7, God speaks these words to David. He says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I'll raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom and he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Okay, so far so good. But it gets complicated when we read later on. And see, this is later on, just a few chapters in, we realize that Solomon did build his house first. <laughs> Does anybody know how long it took Solomon to build his house? His house? know, oh, yeah. 13 years. How long did it take him to build the temple? Seven years, which is interesting. It takes twice as long to build his own house and we also know that because he took a long time building the temple that the people ended up continuing to worship in high places and we're going to come back to what these high places are in a moment Um, again it does also seem it seems from the text that he's building his own house first and then the temple that seems to be implied in the text Could it be, and this is speculation, could it be that his wife is looking for a spot, needs a nicer place, wants that built first? Possibly. We do know that Solomon has a certain weakness for the ladies, right, later on. And so then you get this complicated worship because you hear about these high places. Now, what are these high places? Does anybody know? It's not really clear, actually. Um, uh, So I've done a little bit of study on it. They're not necessarily high. They're not necessarily, sometimes they're up on top of things, but not always. Um, They're simply like a location of worship. That's all it is. It's like a location of worship. It's a place for uh, religious rituals. And here's the thing in first and second Kings, high places becomes an issue probably not an issue at this place at this point it seems it seems that most people go to high places and they still worship Yahweh they're still worshiping God Uh, the temple hasn't been built so where do they worship they go to these designated they're like little church campuses right so they go to town center and they go to rail city because mariners still under construction that kind of thing that was a good illustration wasn't it (laughs) um And that's why, and so here's the thing, high places is kind of a nebulous place. It's because they're kind of nebulous places because if you read through the book of 1st and 2nd Kings, you're going to come across good kings who do all these good things, except they don't remove the high places. And so it's always kind of a bit of of, of of a black mark on your record, but it's not a game changer. Do you know what I mean? because it's not very clear whether or not because people could go to these high places and still worship God but here's the thing left to themselves if people go to these places over time there's nothing to stop these places being transformed into places of idolatry and that as we get through first and second Kings, that seems to be what's happening they become places of idolatry Uh, pagan places where jews mingled worship with god and worship pagan gods yeah but again laurie originally it's not necessarily pagan it's not necessarily idolatrous and that's why even in in the text itself um like a guy like asa who's very very positive he's a very positive king does all these great things tears down some high places but not all of them but is the record is still fairly positive okay now um We'll, we'll, we'll come back to this again and again, right? But if you get to verse 3, it seems pretty positive, though, right? Solomon loved the Lord. Okay, finally, we've got to, you know, give Solomon credit, right? We've got to give him some credit. You know, poor Solomon. I'm giving him such a hard time. Um, Solomon loved the Lord, right? Full, full stop? What does it say? I can see you looking puzzled, Brian. What does it say? Solomon loved the Lord. Is there anything else? Yeah. Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father. Good. Only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. And so, even then, there's a little bit of a qualification there. It's like, yeah, he loved the Lord. And yet, he's, he's still sacrificing in these high places. So there's a little bit of qualification. Again, there's some nuance. But it does seem to suggest that people are still worshiping at high places, and Solomon's delay in building the temple means he's going to keep worshiping there. And so the point is this, is that his love for God, yes, there's love for God, but there's some question marks. And these question marks become bigger question marks, and they'll point to trouble down the road. So, again, at this stage of the game, we're presented with a very complex um, and nuanced Solomon. He'll do some things really well, he'll ask for wisdom from God, and that's good. But we get some indicators that his heart's not completely committed to the way of the Lord now here's a question for you and we won't discuss it because it is a very personal question but it's a question that we need to ask ourselves you ready here's the question what are some small habits that we have in our lives that are small they are small that don't seem very big but if we don't deal with them may become problematic down the road. Now, again, I don't want you to have a conversation around your table right now, but but I think it's, a, it's an important question, isn't it? Because sometimes, sometimes these little things, and, and most people that I know who have kind of really fallen into major trouble. It, it usually starts small. Just, just little things, maybe just fudging the truth a little bit or maybe lingering and looking at someone or, or... They're just little things. But these little things, if they take root, can grow and can grow and can cause problems. And so here's Solomon, I mean he's doing a lot of good things at this point. He's calling on God, he loves the Lord, and he's gonna pray for wisdom. And these are good things, but you just get little, little habits, little things in his life that next week when we do when we finish off Solomon, <laughs> finish off the story, um, we're gonna see, ooh, oh, these little things got bigger and bigger over time. And it's going to be really interesting some of the things that we're going to unpack next week when we look at that but something to think about okay what are some small things that you you've, you've been kind of ah yeah they're they're not a big deal but maybe deep down you know if it keeps going keeps growing it's going to cause problems Anyway, something to think about okay then we get to solomon's wisdom right he prays. And it's a great prayer. Well done. And and Solomon recognizes, he recognizes that the wisdom that he had may not have been the most godly kind of wisdom um, from before, right? And God actually confirms this um, when he speaks to Solomon. And then Saul, we read in verse 4, Solomon goes to Gibeon to sacrifice there. Tricia, that's your question. Why does he go there? Well, we're not sure. Apparently it's, uh, Gibeon is, I mean, it's quite a, a lot of violence in, in the past in, in in the Old Testament. He goes to a great high place. And so it sh- seems to be a place where, where Solomon would go to worship the Lord. And it's in this context that the Lord appears to Solomon in a dream by night. And God says to Solomon, ask and I shall give to you. Okay. Ask and I shall give to you. And so what does he ask for? And this is this it's actually quite a remarkable occurrence. The God of the universe asked Solomon, ask and I shall give it to you. It reminds me of Jesus' words in Matthew 7, ask and it shall be given to you. Is there such a place as Gibeon? Is today? today? Well, this Gibeon, I'm not sure if we know, if we're quite sure where it is. Um, but actually, that, I didn't answer your question. I'm not sure. Yeah, Does Anybody know? Um, what time is it? Why don't we just have a little bit of fun? Okay? I mean, as if Solomon's not fun enough. But why don't we just take a moment, okay? You guys going to have to use the chat function. It'll be kind of fun. If you heard the voice of God saying to you tonight, Josh. Josh. It'd be deeper, Josh. Ask, and I shall give it to you. Okay, and you can't say a million dollars. It's not something like that. It's like what what you need, right, in, in your life. what? How would you respond? Ask and it shall be given to you. Just take a few moments around your tables or in your rows and answer the question, if God asks you, ask and it shall be given to you, what is your heart's desire to receive from God? Okay, just take a moment to do that. Okay, let's let's gather right back in. Um, let Let me hear some things. What are some things that, or what are some things that you would ask God for? Some say bottom, like um, a deep, deep faith in God. Um, a self-contained spaceship was Mike. My- uh. <laughs> what else? The ability to discern his voice. Ah, the ability to discern his voice. Very clear. Like, I know that this is, yeah. Yeah, ears to hear. Wow, that's good. We like the one in our group that was asked by what to ask. Huh? Yeah, and yeah, somebody else uh, put that one down. That's very good. Yeah. Yeah, what should I ask for? Yeah. Uh, uh, to, pray to pray without ceasing, yeah. Not telling God, but waiting for God to tell me. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's good. Praying without ceasing, yeah. Anything else? I think a full trust mode's like supremacy so that I can actions. Yeah. Full trust in God's supremacy and His sovereignty and His love and everything, so that you will not be anxious. And somebody else, yeah, talked about living life without fear, right? I I, I thought, for myself, I thought I would like to have political savvy. <laughs> <laughs> like it is kind of, a, but I'm horrible when it comes to politics, like, like navigating people at times and i always step on landmines and i always end up making people really angry at me um i don't i i wish i know some guys that are just so smooth and it's like how did you get through there i stepped on four mines and you got to the other side and so i wish i had and i had a guy early on in my uh my pastoral life he goes david he goes you're very relational people like you but politically you're terrible <laughs> because you're just you're just going to really annoy people if you try to be political. So I wish yeah, I wish I had some some political savvy. <laughs> uh and you know Solomon gets political savvy he's he he gets there. I a friend that was lawyer in Singapore and he taught me a lot, Well I know Richard, yeah. yeah. I know Richard, yeah. Minister at a regular election, this one man always got over ninety percent of a popular vote. So he was able not to compete for votes and do what was right in building community that works for everybody. Yeah, he he was one yeah, he was one of those uh, one of those leaders that in Singapore a lot of people really uh, really liked. He, I mean, he was a dictator. Um, uh, yeah, but it's Lee Kuan Yew. I know who he is. Yeah, um, but people people liked him, and he had wisdom. So maybe he's like Solomon in some ways, right? He could have been like Solomon. Now, Solomon. Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, we just talked about that. A lot of countries in the world today the governments that they trust the most are these kind of governments rather than democracies so who knows now solomon recognized god's kindness and he is aware that of god's promises to his father um, that the promise was that a son would sit on the throne yeah and his response solomon's response implies uh, that he he had gotten his own personal wisdom wrong. Because look at verse 7. He says, And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David my father. Although I am but a little child, I do not know how to go out or come in. Which is a, a way of saying, I, I I need wisdom. I need wisdom to navigate life. Now remember what David said to Solomon. Use your wisdom. You're a man of wisdom, Right? but right here it seems to be a bit of a confess confession on solomon's part is that okay maybe this wisdom was not the right kind and he says you know what i need help i need help to lead such a big nation there's so many people so i need some help and i need wisdom from above and so he prays that god would empower him to distinguish between right and wrong which is an interesting request given his past um and his response shows him that, uh, you know, God's response or uh, Solomon's response shows that Solomon knew what he needed, and so he says, "Lord, give your servant an understanding mind to govern your people." It literally means, "Lord, give me a listening heart." Right, Clayton? of what you were saying, right? A listening heart. He doesn't ask, he doesn't ask for inner potential to be realized, but he prays that he would have a listening heart that god would help him in leadership and that he would hear god's voice and receive his direction okay i think that's a really powerful prayer for us to pray lord i pray for a listening heart hmm Yeah. But what about a dream when somebody like Dave said, Oh, I realize oh, I that's a dream. So you wake up and not be sure? Or? Yeah, that's a good question. In the Bible, when you come across the word dream, it, it it's not like it is not necessarily like I'm asleep and I have a dream. It could be a vision. Mm-hmm. So so dream and vision often it it means the same yeah. means the same thing. Yeah, but from from my understanding, um, the the Hebrew, from my understanding of the Hebrew, is that um, it it could be a vision that he had. Or it could be a dream, but it could also be a vision. Um, Yeah. Well, I wonder, I wonder if that was a form of confession, that he's basically saying, you know, I had wisdom, but the kind of wisdom that I had before is not the wisdom from above. It's kind of savvy wisdom, I knew how to take out my enemies in order to solidify political power, but in doing so, it's not necessarily practicing right and wrong. So I think that is kind of an indirect confession of that. So I think that's, yeah, I think that's a good observation, Merle. He prays for for a a listening heart. And I think that's a good thing for us to pray for. And, uh, And we need to remember that God, the God we worship, is a God who speaks. He's a God who speaks, right? And it says that the Lord was pleased with this request. He was pleased with the request. And what does God say? He says, He says, because you've asked this, and the Lord said, and God said to him, because you have asked this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, I will do according to your word. Okay? I'll do according to your word. He had not asked for what a lot of people may ask for, a long life. He did not ask for great wealth and he did not ask for the death of his enemies now notice what Saul. this is this is an interesting part because god says look you ask very wisely right you, you asked for a listening heart you did not ask you did not ask for a long life you did not ask for wealth and you did not ask for the death of your enemies so this is what i'm going to give you in addition to a hearing heart I'm going to give you a long life, wealth. But notice what the third thing, he doesn't say the third. God doesn't say, and death to your enemies. Because he knows all of them, because the death to the enemies was what he was carrying out before in this old kind of wisdom. So it's interesting that that's the part that God leaves out. He just says, you know, Law, I will give you these things, but not the third thing, right? So in, in light of this previous execution of his enemies, God is saying, is asking, or God, uh, um, God is commanding Solomon or commending Solomon for asking these things. And so he says, I'll give you a wise and discerning mind. I'll give you long life. I'll give you great wealth and honor, but I will not let you kill as many people as you like. Killing your political rivals is no longer on the table, right? And this is significant. And so, we go from here. And, and, and what this, again, reminds us, is something that we talked about last week, is that there's more than one kind of wisdom. There's a kind of wisdom that takes out your enemies. And then there's a kind of wisdom that comes from above. And Solomon prayed for the wisdom that came from above. And I think that, that's significant. So, it's so significant, what do we see Solomon do right after that? He says, i got to worship, which is cool. But this time, he doesn't go to the high places. Where does he go? He goes to Jerusalem, yeah, which is interesting because that's where the Ark of the Covenant is. So already he seems to be practicing some wisdom. He's learning to discern between right and wrong. Now, this new found, this newly given wisdom is going to be put to the test in a very famous story. You guys know this story of the two prostitutes? Right, two prostitutes must be living together kind of maybe in a brothel or something like this and they both have babies and one mother accidentally smothers her baby and in the middle of the night gets up and takes her dead baby and swaps it with a living baby and says the living baby is hers and the, the sleeping mother wakes up, sees the dead baby, go, wait a minute, this isn't my baby. And they come before Solomon and said, look, you gotta sort this out and so this is Solomon's wisdom to do justice is being put on the spot. A couple things to observe about. So do you guys know this story for the most part? If not, you can just kind of skim through it. Um, it's it's quite, quite a remarkable story. Um, one of the Proverbs, one of the Proverbs, the lips of a king speak as an oracle and his mouth should not betray, uh, should not betray justice. I mean, he needs to be a, a just uh, king, and so the king in the ancient world was like a supreme court; he was the highest appeal for justice. If the king was corrupt, chances are the whole nation was corrupt. And so wisdom is put on display when these two prostitutes come before Solomon. And now the fact that they're prostitutes is is significant, because prostitutes in the ancient world were viewed as seductive and not trustworthy and misleading and so this just adds to like within the context of the time and within in the context of the writing it adds greater pressure on solomon because prostitution prostitutes i'm saying within the context of the time they were perceived as being very deceptive and so it would be hard Did, did we lose him? I think so, yeah. He's frozen. Yeah. but We, we don't, don't actually know that. that. Like, we we don't, don't actually know that that, that, that that is the real mother. It's, it makes sense. It makes sense. And that is, that is the conclusion. Well, actually, what does Solomon say? The one that says... This is my son that is alive, and your son is dead. And the other says, No, but your son is dead, and my son is the living one. Okay, verse 24. And the king said, Bring me a sword. So a sword was brought before the king. And the king said, Divide the living child into two. So this is how he's going to solve the problem. I'm going to use a sword for justice. Not for killing my enemy, but for justice, right? Divide the living child into two. Give half to the one and half to the other. Then the woman whose son was alive Said to the king, because her heart yearned for her son, O my lord, give her the living child, and by no means put him to death. But we're not sure which which woman that is actually. The the text is intentionally nebulous. I didn't know. I've I've read this text so many times. I just oh, it's very clear. It's a woman who's who said, you know, it's very clear in my mind which woman is the one whose child is still alive but if you read the text carefully the narrator leaves us in the dark we're not sure who is who who's saying what it's kind of interesting but solomon can see through it solomon can see through it no i think he used that as a way to expose to, to, yeah he used he used the new wisdom yeah and so already and so a couple things to notice is that solomon the wisdom has kicked in it's wisdom from above and solomon for the first time is using the sword for justice and not to kill his enemies yeah and so this is a great story it's a picture of wisdom from above and so the narrator, I think, is making the point that there has been a change in Solomon. When we pray for wisdom from above, when we pray for a hearing heart, we are being transformed. And then we get to chapter four. Now, chapter four—have you, did you guys read chapter four? Yes. Oh, Thank you. Was it riveting? Thank you. Oh, oh, yeah. Oh, you're welcome. How many of you, when you come across a lot of names in the Bible, skip along and get back to the narrative? Okay. (laughs) I see those hands. Now, I ought to say, well, no, because there's so much in these names and you need to... But I often do the same thing. Um, There is something in these descriptions that can actually help. Um, What is it in chapter 4 that we can draw from okay let's see what we can draw from well we get a whole bunch of leaders right there's a whole list of leaders and we get a list and it tells us what they're doing right so there's azariah the son of zadok who was a priest Elihoref and ahijah the sons of shisha were secretaries okay that's good jehoshaphat the son of ahilud was a recorder. Okay, that's that's handy. Uh, Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was the commander of the army. Zadok and uh, Beothar were priests. And so we get a list and we get a picture of what everybody is doing. Verse 7. Solomon had 12 officers over all Israel who provided food for the king and his household. Each man was to make provision for one month in the year. They were; These were their names and we get all their names. Now... Um, Yeah, it's a different Ben-Hur. <laughs> I saw you yeah, when somebody gets thrown up by that, yeah. So a couple things to point out here. Solomon reorganizes the kingdom, and I have a, I have a handy map at the end of your notes that you'll point this out. He reorganizes the kingdom, and it's not necessarily under the same configuration as the 12 tribes. There's some overlap, but he sets up a different structure for his kingdom. So one of the takeaways is this, is that Solomon introduces a new way of organizing the nation and he uses innovation. And it turns out that part of the wisdom from above is the gift of being a good administrator. It's funny whenever I talk to people about their spiritual gifts, very few people tell me they have the gift of administration and if they do, they kind of say sheepishly is like, well, apparently I have the gift of administration. My wife has a gift of administration and she's very administrative, um, but she never is saying, and I have the gift of administration is like, oh, I wish I had one of the cooler gifts, right? But administration is absolutely key. It's really important. And Solomon shows that part of the wisdom from above is he's showing himself to be a very able, Administrator and reminds you that good leaders can think outside the box. We read in verse twenty an important verse. So it says, and this is important because verse twenty. How many of you have a heading and then it says verse twenty in your Bibles? Yeah, the verse twenty actually belongs in the in the upper section. It's a concluding statement that says, Judah and Israel were as many as the sands by the sea. They ate and they drank and we're happy so it's a kind of a concluding statement and why is this important well this is an answer to solomon's prayer because remember he says i don't know how to lead so many people and it says the people were happy and everybody could eat everybody had enough food and so right away we get a picture of solomon who's leading in such a way that the people are happy and they have food to eat okay remember that The people were happy and they had food to eat. He is leading in such a way that it is benefiting the people. We are going to see a shift next week. We are going to see a real shift, and the narrator is going to make it very clear that when the shift takes place, the people, the, the ones that suffer, are the people. We're going to get to that. But so far, this is good. The people ate, they drank, they're happy. Solomon's big worries, his big prayer back in chapter 3, verse 8, had been answered. And this is really good. And the, there's, we're presenting with an economic and taxation system that is nowhere near as oppressive as the one in Canada. And No, I'm just kidding. Sorry. Totally kidding, kidding, kidding. Um, but yeah. And then you get to verse 21 and it talks about you know things are so well uh, verse 21 is a new section and solomon's reign goes beyond simply the local lands it goes beyond the borders and this is a fulfillment of psalm 72 he shall have dominion from sea to sea and it's quite a kingdom and so the narrators making this point this is a pretty impressive kingdom the glory of solomon's reign everyone's feeling pretty happy the people are happy they're happy with solomon it's a secure kingdom we read that uh you know on judah and israel lives in safety from dan even to beersheba every man under his vine under his fig tree all the days of solomon wow that's pretty good and and we also notice it's a very strong kingdom can somebody read verse 26 you have it. Just read it out once you come to it. Solomon 4,000 stalls to chariot horses and 12,000 horses. Yeah. How many stalls? 40,000? Does it say 40,000 in yours? You're Okay, yeah. In other translations it's 40,000. That's interesting. Okay, yeah, so we got, either way, there's a lot of horses. <laughs> um we learn that even though things are tranquil, Solomon's not waging war. It's a very secure kingdom. But just in case, we read that Solomon has a significant military force at his fingertips. In my translation, it's 40,000 um, staff of, uh, for the uh, horses for his chariots. Um, yeah, 40,000 horses, 12,000 horsemen. And that's, that's pretty good, eh? So in case there's trouble, he's got lots of horses at his fingertips. We're all good with that? Yeah. Well, hang on, but wait a second. What does it say in Deuteronomy about kings? There's some teaching about kings in Deuteronomy. Kind of outlining what the kings should be like and what they shouldn't be like. So if you're a king, according to Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 16, we read these words. The king, only he, must not acquire many horses for himself or cause people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord said to you, you shall never return that way again, right? And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. Okay, so this is a bit awkward. Hang on. Deuteronomy is very explicit about this. You shall not have all these horses. And now at this stage, we don't know where we got these horses. Did he raise these horses? I don't think so. In fact, later on we find out where these horses were imported from can you guess <laughs> yes they came from Egypt now again the narrator just throws this in there and it's easy to just read by it but this this going to come up again we become more explicit later on and the other thing to think about um, back in first Samuel Samuel the prophet issues some warnings about the behavior of Israel's kings and he warns them about um, returning to Egypt to get horses. right? And up until now, we've encountered two kings that really like to, accom- uh, to accumulate horses. Who are they? Absalom, David's son, and Adonijah, also David's son. Hardly poster boys for great kings, right? so we find out later on where these horses come from they come from egypt now the point is there's a point is is that there, even at this stage things are going well but there's some warnings there's some warnings and this is going to show up later on and i think it's a reminder it's a reminder that you know very seldom do people fall suddenly If you, I mean, it's in the news all the time, different Christian figures that are falling morally. Very seldom do people fall like that. It's like, I was doing all good, and then suddenly I start sleeping around. There's something going on, and there's these little steps along the way. And what we're getting in the life of Solomon, and we're getting some good stuff, and it's a mixed life, Solomon, isn't it? Which, I, you know, our lives are mixed as well. We get signs of grace and we get also signs of sin. But in Solomon's story, it's like this ticking time bomb that's about to go off. And Solomon does, he begins ambiguously, he has some good years, but man, there are some signs, there's some warning signs, and these signs are going to get bigger and bigger once we get to next week. Chapter five is basically a preparation chapter for the building of the temple. Um, and so, what we see is Solomon. He's he's uh, he's doing well judicially uh, in terms of uh, executing justice, administratively, intellectually. Right? We read that he's the author of all of these all these uh, proverbs, and he wrote songs. He spoke of trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He spoke of beasts, of birds, of reptiles, of fish. And the people of all the nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. And then at this point, by the time we get to chapter 5, Solomon is setting things up. He's trying to get material to build the temple. He approaches the king of Tyre, a guy named Hiram. And uh, he says, I need some supplies to build this temple. And and Hiram's like, sure, that sounds good. Uh, Hiram tries to negotiate with Solomon, doesn't get very far. And then we read about a lot of forced labor. And it's unclear where these forced labor, who these people were. Later on, it's going to become a problem. But at this point, we're not sure. Are they Canaanite prisoners? We don't know. But there's lots of them. There's lots of forced laborers. Now, the laborer is, you work one, it's like, it's like um, firefighters, you know, one, one on, two nights off kind of thing, right? They work one month on, two months off kind of thing. So it's not over the top. Um, but they have to get the stones necessary for the building projects on the horizon, All right? And then Solomon is getting ready to build the temple and you want to know the details of how that temple is built well you're reading this week there'll be lots of details i expect to see fully drawn out pictures of the temple according to the description that'll be your homework expected at seven o'clock before class begins Uh, actually it's really interesting when we talk about the temple it's so descriptive but to this day people don't know how to actually draw it and so it is it descriptive in terms of show how it's built, or is it descriptive to communicate its splendor? It's probably more the latter. Uh, We're actually not going to spend a lot of time on the temple next week. We're going to get more into how Solomon's life plays out because I think there's a lot more that we need to pay attention to that. So how is Solomon's kingdom going to work out? How is he going to end? Is he going to end well? Will he finish well? Tune in next week. No, no, you can't can't give it away, Ray. Tune in next week, and we will see how Solomon learns casting crowns. Oh, yes, Rebecca, I like that. Rebecca makes a point. There's a song. It's a really interesting song, and it's called um, Slow Fade by Casting Crowns. Has anybody ever heard that song? It's a really interesting song about how, how we don't just fall like that it's a slow fade and uh you know i've been i've been pastoring how long for 22 years now i feel old when i say that i've been pastoring 22 years Uh, but i have seen so many people and i've said this pretty much in every class i've seen so many people that were like elders, were leaders in the church that were on fire and just slowly but surely, where are they now? And they walk away. And how does that happen? And it happens quite a bit. And that's why one of the things that I love about you know, the Bible, but as well as different movements in church history, like the Puritans, is the call to finish well. And the danger years, the danger years, I think, are the, da- are the years when you start getting a little bit older, closer to retirement and those sorts of things because it's easy to just, yeah, I'm going to take it easy. Was what the Proverbs says. I, mean, I wish Solomon read his own Proverbs. You know, you know, a little folding of the hands, right? A little closing of the eyes, a little relaxing. And it's a slow fade. And next thing you know, you've walked away and, and your heart's no longer a listening heart your heart's no longer alive to the things of God and I really think Solomon is such a warning to us and and, and we see Solomon throughout our world today who do not finish well so let this be an encouragement it, it's it's a scary encouragement for me <laughs> it's a scary thing because I read Solomon guy had the wisdom from God and spoiler alert, he doesn't finish well. So you have the wisdom from above, a hearing heart, and he doesn't finish well. My goodness, that's a, that's a warning. It's a wake up call for us. Now, thanks be to God. He, he's gracious. He's a God of second, third, a hundred chances. And he calls us back and he's always wooing us back. And he gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit that makes us discontent with when we're wandering away. So he gives us everything that we can need in order to persevere to the end. And I'm very thankful for that. But we need to make sure we cling to him, right? I love that, old, that line in that old hymn. Nothing in my hands I bring. What's the next line? Simply to thy cross I cling, right? It's absolutely key. Yeah, rock of ages. Okay? All right, let me uh, close our time in prayer. And we will gather next week and see how the story plays out. Lord, thank you for your grace. And we are reminded of your grace and we need your grace. We're thankful for the cross too. We live on the other side of the cross and we know that uh, our deepest sins have been uh, forgiven once and for all because of the cross. That we've been reconciled to the Father through the Son. And you've given us the gift of the Holy Spirit, your empowering presence to transform us into the people you want us to be. So we're thankful you have given us so much. And so may our response be a desire to walk with you. May we be like the uh, disciples when, uh, when Jesus asked them, are you going to leave too? And they said, where are we going to go? Lord, you have the words of eternal life, and we believe and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And apart from you, there is no life. And all the things that seem so appealing uh, will not deliver in the end. And so, Lord, may we read your word and learn from your word and do whatever we can to cultivate a lively walk with you day by day. That's our desire in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Thanks for participating in this class. If you've been engaging in classes online, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca getting involved in the life and mission of C.A. Church.